0: I'm going to be using a uh, stool this morning. Uh, The worst thing, you know, that could happen, well, one of the worst things is the pastor, the preacher, fainting from sickness during the service. (laughs) A damper on worship. Let's open our Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. We're winding down with just a couple more weeks through this, um, pardon me, last and challenging, very challenging book of the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, before we dive into the Word, though, let's sort of uh, uh, exterminate through prayer anything that might distract us this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We just ask that you would um, bless our time together in your Word. God, may your Word stand out to us and what you want us to hear stand out to us, Lord. And how you want us to apply it to our lives stand out to us. Lord, may we not be people who come just expecting something to feel good about ourselves necessarily but really expecting to grow in you expecting to further trust in you expecting to further delight and give ourselves to you this morning through your word in jesus name we pray this amen all right so i think what's more we're going to do if alright with you we're just going to kind of go through the word i'll make some comments along the way all right so here we go verse 13 start with me there your words have been hard against me says the lord but you say, and this is again Judah speaking, how have we spoken against you? You have said this, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. Okay, stop here. You know, it sounds like human liberation. Uh, Perhaps you've lived it or you know someone who is living it. Perhaps even uh, your spouse is living it at home right now. Uh, Perhaps you're on the verge of it. There's a picture of a man or woman who's gone to church many years. Perhaps even nobly served her. Then one day comes the realization, why am I doing this? And why (laughs) What's the point of jumping through all these hoops? Such a comment, uh, understandable. And you know, I've been there before. It's typically, though, birthed out of two life situations. Either the person has participated in the church that has made a caricature of knowing Jesus and uh, really wants you for a live body, you know, to keep serving and keep the church going. You know, we wonder, man, you know, I don't feel really appreciated. I don't feel like what I do really matters. I don't feel like I'm needed here. Or, in such situation, the person just wants more time to sit at home in his pajamas, which does sound attractive, right? And that sounds nice. Sitting at home in your PJs, enjoying your thing, sort of uh, achieving success no matter what, whatever your pursuit is. You're asking God for help only when you need it, like Western Union style. It's gonna wire me back when I need, and that's gonna be it. These things are attractive because when you look at other people's lives, when you look at their lifestyles, it seems like that kind of lifestyle pays dividends. Doesn't? And in some cases, it literally pays dividends. Um, This year, stock market, uh, I know in the uh, United States stock market, boasts over 150 mutual funds that are designated as socially responsible. Or socially responsible. This means that investments are only made in companies that meet ethical standards. My favorite, and I I looked through a list of these this week, my favorite was the New Covenant Fund, uh, which, (laughs) looking into it, 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 there's a a portion of its management fees goes to support the Presbyterian Church of America, which got me thinking, what a great revenue stream. What I could do as a second job is I will begin recommending mutual funds for you guys, and a fee goes to Sunrise. What do you think? Anyone want to sign up? Nobody well, so there are these ethical funds, uh, socially responsible funds. Back in 2002, a different sort of fund kind of quietly emerged on the scene. It's called the Vice Fund. It claims that it favors, quote, products or services often considered socially irresponsible. Uh, these are investments made by various managers and companies linked to alcohol, tobacco, gambling, And my favorite, military contracts. All right, because now, now listen, this rests on this approach, the specific approach and niche here is that, that there are stocks that exploit the dark side of the human nature, especially during economic downturns. Because as one guy said, this is a former manager of the Vice Fund, he expands on this. He says, bad habits don't change. Even through bad economic times, people still indulge in vices regardless of what happens in the stock market: smoking, drinking, gambling. And of course, there's financial profit in war. It kind of makes sense, right? You know, if things are bad; people still drink, they still smoke, they still gamble. In fact, sometimes even more so. By the way, I was as I was reading, <laughs> as I was reading the Yahoo Finance profile of the Vice Fund. A couple of the headlines read: um, I just thought this was funny. Jack Daniels does indeed please. And that was one of the headlines, as well as obesity epidemic carries opportunities. All right, so this is sort of the thing that it exploits. That's very sad, isn't it? But these philosophies, they produce dividends. They actually work. Uh, in fact, this past month alone, the Vice Fund was rated the number one fund in its class. We see the Vice literally pays dividends in others' lives with whom we're constantly comparing ourselves. You know what I mean? You look at their lives, you say, man, I know the Lord is supposed to be with you, but that sure looks nice. Who are these people? Who are the people we're constantly looking at, comparing ourselves with? Well, Malachi actually mentions three groups of people with whom uh, God's, God's people, God's covenant people, Israel, are comparing themselves to. And it's quite similar, remarkably, to those I think we compare ourselves to today. So let's look at these people. All right, first of all, verse 15, uh, you got the arrogant. Right? The, we call the arrogant blessed. These are the prideful, the ambitious. These are those who think of themselves and their agenda as the most important thing and will remove any obstacle in their path to achieve their goal. All right, by the way, as we talk about these folks, we shouldn't eliminate ourselves from this, uh, from this groupings of people. But we often, you know, when you have someone ask you, uh, what kind of person are you, you don't say they're you know, kind of arrogant. You know, I'm just, <laughs> Arrogance describes me well. We often think of other people that way. We compare ourselves to other people. These are kind of people that, that trample on you to get something they want, and they sometimes use their relationship with you to achieve a goal. All right, we know this in business. We know this in friendships. It doesn't have to just be a goal of success. It can be a goal of feeling better about oneself. It can be a goal of, you know, using you as a, you know, someone to go out with on a Friday night, yeah. kind of person you feel like you're in constant competition with. you ever ever had that kind of friendship? You feel like you're always in competition with them through, I don't know, stories, uh, it could be through um, games, I, I mean, athletics, could be anything. You just kind of feel like you're always in competition with them. Yet they do win. they do succeed, and often they're even praised for it. Seems attractive. That's the first group of people. Malachi mentions another, evildoers. In verse 15, he talks about evildoers. People who, what they do is evil. Right? I mean, that that's, uh, kind of says it all in that description. And I think specifically, they're talking kind of, kind of person who just, who's a hedonist. Right? They live for base pleasures. They live to please themselves. Which, by the way, as we talked about last week, is not necessarily a bad thing. God created us that way. We often just try to please ourselves with lower pleasures. Things that are not God. He is our highest pleasure. So these lower pleasures. Whatever feels good. So, you know, what, what, what do we say? Whatever floats your boat. I the, think the youths used to say whatever cranks your tractor. Whatever floats your root beer. Whatever mows your lawn. Keep going? Whatever butters your biscuit. Right? These things, that's what you live for. This can be as simple as cracking jokes at the expense of others and calling it playful sarcasm to feed your own sense of pleasure. Indulging in second looks at women who are not your wife, whether that woman is sunbathing on a beach or sunbathing on your computer, right? Pleasing self. Fishing compliments until your friend finally says, yes, you're a great person. It's true. <laughs> the rumors are true. It can be... Uh, eating, drinking, shopping. Shopping, by the way, I forgot about shopping. I'm not a shopper, but I was back in the States this week. I, I went on a run. and you know, had my shoes. My shoes were, caused my uh, my big toe to hurt. I'm thinking, it would be a good idea to get some new shoes. There's an outlet mall across the street. I go over to these giant outlet mall. And I just forgot. I haven't just been around that in a long time. Most of my shopping takes place through Amazon.com or various other stores and ordered to people's houses who bring them back here. But you know, I'm over there and I forgot how people are catering to you towards that sense of please yourself. It's all about you, right? The basically the, the people of the kiosk, people of the kiosk are the most like that. Hey, you look good today. What's going to make you look better? Someone said that to me. That's have something to make you look better. One guy even sprayed cologne in my direct, I was two feet away from him and he said like, this will help. And he sprayed it at me. I kid you not, I was two feet away. Just sprayed cologne at me. like, it's that living for your own pleasure lifestyle. Finally, there's a third group in here. Okay, it talks about those who test God. Verse 15. Those who test God. These are folks who say, you know, well, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Right? It's the reciprocal factor. Uh, if you give me this promotion, I'll serve you. If you help me find a friend, boyfriend, uh, girlfriend, flirting buddy, escort service, whatever it is, I'll really step up. And we don't necessarily say those things, but in our mind, we're thinking it. Like, you know what? If God just blesses me a little more, I'll get off my butt. Normally, the way this really looks is we go to God when we need tangible blessing. We test him. As if he won't notice that he's simply a vending machine in our lives. And yet we still put in the quarters. Right? If I put in this, God will give me the soda. Now, you look at people in those situations and somehow they seem more blessed. Why? That can be frustrating. You try to fear God, you walk with Him. But do you ever stop to think that the blessing is really the curse? Think about this with this for a moment here. Uh, Romans 1, Paul says that God gives people over to their own desires, that eventually... As they continue to indulge in self, he gives them over to their own desires. In other words, their desires, often the pleasurable desire, becomes the snare. It becomes the trap. So money might not be a blessing, but a curse. Right? It's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Jesus says, money is the root of many kinds of evils. The love of money is the root of many kinds of evils. Why do we think that receiving it must be a blessing. You know? Could it be sometimes it's actually a curse? And it's true of all these. What about the person of pride or arrogance who wants to have, have more, have most? There will always be someone better. If you want to aim for the top, there will always be someone better. If not, there will always be someone else chasing you who will catch up and pass you. I think about guys like, you know, as as a... You know, I love athletics. I think about guys like Tiger Woods who wants to always be the best, strives to be the best, but someone's always chasing him. Imagine wanting to be the best. All right? Just making that your number one goal in life to be better than everyone else. It'll eventually catch up with you. The blessing of being on top becomes the curse of radical discontentment. Doesn't it? Because you'll never be able to get there or when you do get there, you can't stay there. What about the evildoer who does things only to serve his base pleasures? Those things grow dull. They become the curse because they grow dull. So you indulge in more things and and that grows dull. So you indulge in something that's a little bit further and that grows dull. The two best examples of this, the more obvious examples of this that you might think of are uh, addictive substances and pornography. Right? You think about marijuana has been called the gateway drug because people who partake in it, it's not enough. It leads to amphetamines usage. It leads to ecstasy. It leads to cocaine, and meth, and heroin. And hopefully, none of you have experienced this, but you've heard of that. You always kind of want more because the previous pleasure grows dull, right? You think about it with pornography. It starts with thinking about other women, then sneaking a peek at an ad on a favorite website, then visiting the website of that ad, and then it gets more explicit. Because the previous pleasures grow more dull. You see what I mean? Now, this can happen in these naturally sort of hurtful things in our lives. But it's, it's true if you live for running, for diving, for television, for whatever. All good things, but when they become the ultimate thing, they will eventually become dull. You won't be satisfied with them. In other words, they become a curse in your life. You see what I mean? The blessing becomes a curse because all pleasures not rooted in God himself grow dull. He is the source of all pleasure, and he never means, never means any other kind of pleasure to be lasting. Besides him. All right, let's keep reading. Read with me, verse 16 through 17. All right, so they're questioning, okay, what's the point? We look at these lives, we think they are very blessed. Lord, I don't understand. I look at people's lives, and I'm the Christian here. So let's read. what happens from there? Verse 16. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before them of those who fear the Lord and esteemed His name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. We have here the two glorious points. So what's the point? When we grow tired and weary, what's the point? Of loving and serving God. I'm going to start with, there's two of points here. I'm going to start with the latter, verse 17, where God says, They shall be mine, that day when I make up my treasure possession. I was thinking about this this week. And it was an honest question. And it's a, it's a question of depth. Is it better to belong or to be free? Is it better to belong to someone or to be free in life? Think about this for a minute. This question is not theoretical, nor do you, you figure it out one time and it goes away for the rest of your life. In fact, it wasn't theoretical for me this week when I was without my family. Uh, I was at a church plant, of a new church conference in Orlando, Florida. It was a wonderful time, just of, uh, you know, personal growth in terms of being a follower of Jesus and, and I think it was wonderful in terms of learn, learning a lot for our church. But when I'm not with Katie and the boys... Can I be honest about this here? When I'm kidding you boys, There are certain advantages centered around freedom. I know some of you guys who go on trips more frequently, you know, you understand this. Alright, making beds, tucking in my shirts, you know, proper eating habits are optional. (laughs) Right on your own, they're optional. Alright, I don't need to worry about them. The, uh, you know, the condition with which I leave, the sink, the toilet, the bath... You know, those are my choice. All right, I can do whatever thanks to the clearing in. I appreciate you guys. All right, so, you know, there's freedoms. that You have uh, freedom of food, which for me means the gluten. I love the gluten. If you know my family, they're, they're all allergic or even have a disease connected with eating wheat and gluten. But I had pastas, breads. Uh, I had, you know, when there wasn't gluten, I would order a side of gluten. There's a certain sense of just... You can kind of do what you want. And being married and having kids, normally my life is not that way, if I'm honest. Let me be honest with you guys, right? I, I, I enjoy the first couple of days of freedom. There's a reason that Paul says in a minister, it's actually preferable if you're able to remain single. Your interests aren't divided. Your passions aren't divided. You have one singular passion in God. You're know, thinking about your wife and kids. So that's actually an advantage. Now, is that what I want? Is that what I really want? No. But I don't say no easily. I don't want to lie to you. I want to be real honest. It's a hard question. But ultimately, no. Because after those first two days, I miss Katie's nearness. You know, I miss the boys jumping on me and making a, you know, cacophony of noise everywhere. I go and... And, you know, blooding my nose. And whatever they do, they just hurt me. But I miss that. Uh, Alright? You know, and yes, because I belong to them. And now, yes, there's the picking up of toys that goes along with that. There's the laundry, the dishes, the reading of countless stories at bedtime that all sound the same. Just as with God, belonging to Him. Sometimes you get tired of fellowshipping with God's people. Service to Him sometimes grows mundane. But to belong to something bigger, some someone's bigger, and ultimately someone bigger, far more precious. So, in a nutshell, this morning, if you forget everything else I've sort of said in my monotone voice this morning, in a nutshell, the sermon: to belong is better than to be free. To be that treasured possession of God, God's. To belong to Him as a son. To be his is better than to be free. And I don't mean by the way free the way scripture means it. Which is free from sin, free from bondage, free from this disease that wreaks havoc in our life. I mean free the way most people think of it. How do most people think of free? They think of it in terms of, uh, of a being capable of this complete autonomous freedom. Right, that at any time they are the sort of captured their own ship, the master of their own destiny. That's the way most people think of free. I can make any choice I want at any time. But Scripture says that kind of freedom is an illusion. We know it from experience. I'll talk about that as well. But that kind of freedom, I can do whatever I want whenever I want. It's not real freedom. We've looked at this before. If you remember last year, we went through um, big words from Livington, 10 words from the book of Romans, that Paul, the apostle Paul explains... You have two choices. You can be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Read this with me if you would. This is from uh, Romans chapter 6. Verse 16 through 18. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart, the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. He goes on to say, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Another righteousness was a part of your life. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, in other words, becoming more like Jesus, and to its end eternal life. In other words, he's saying, look, you had this choice, but one choice leads ultimately to death. And not just eternal death, but death in this life. Like we talked about, the things that never satisfy, the pleasures that grow dull, right? The aiming to exalt self, pride, the arrogance, the I want to be number one, leads to death because you can't ever get there. And when you do, someone knocks you off your perch. These things lead to death even in this life. The slave to God. Oh, there's great fruit in that. But we also know this from experience. Think about it. For the person of pride or arrogance, who chooses the pursuit of being number one? For the person who lives for self, the person who tests God, who chooses that lifestyle? I would, I would argue choice is certainly involved. But are such choices completely free? I can stop whenever I want. No, I enjoy doing this. But I can stop whenever I want. So why can't many people stop? Why can't a person who lives for themselves not stop living for themselves? Why can't a person who would trample over people to get to the top not stop and think and consider you know, not having to be number one? And why do we get angry when others threaten that goal in our lives? Right? If someone says, no, 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 you really shouldn't do that, who are you to tell me that? We get angry, don't we? Why is that? Is it because you enjoy these things so much? Or is it because they own you? So point number one, to belong is better than to be free. To belong to God, in fact, is the truest freedom we can know. Read with me in verse 16. The other point. What's the point of this? Verse 16 says, those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard. Now first of all, this next group of people get together. There's, a, there's another group of people, these God-fears, and they come to a conclusion. Every translation portrays Malachi as describing this all the way through verse 16. Right? He's describing the situation. More likely, you see this in the NIV, I don't want to get too complicated. It's something called a copulative. It introduces what they get together to talk about. So, more, really in the Hebrew, it probably more reads like this. Alright, those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And then those God-fears are speaking here. God has paid attention and heard. He has wrote a book of remembrance that concretely lists people. Does that make sense? So it's really, they're getting together and they're remembering the truth about who God is. We have these examples in Scripture, even in the Old Testament, of these books that are written, these sort of eternal books, which we're told later is the book of life. They're reminding themselves of this truth. And this conclusion is critical. For all who are asking the question, what's the point? What's the point of me serving? What's the point of going on in this thing called the Christian life? You can imagine not just the prideful, the evildoers, the people who test God, but even the god fears, wondering, you know, we believe God is righteous and just. All right? We just haven't seen those things materialize. We haven't seen righteousness and justice break out in our community of people who love God. Where is it? Throughout the Old Testament, God's righteousness, his justice, is veiled. You know what I mean by that? Veiled? You can kind of see it, but not fully see it. If you read the Old Testament, you see this righteousness pop up. All right? and, and, and you see it um, in people, in righteous kings and judges, and, but it's always flawed, Righteousness. You see justice break out among God's people from the Lord but it's never permanent is it in the Old Testament if you read this it's never permanent it's sort of hazy imagine what it was like then I mean do you ever stop to imagine what it was like to try to understand the need for a rescuer in the Old Testament and who the Messiah would look like it's easy for us isn't it you know we, we sit back and we say oh yeah it's easy and clearly, if you read this thing, he had to be a suffering servant. He had to die on a cross. He was going to be raised again. Even if you read the Old Testament, you can understand. Easy for us to say that. That's because, you know, you have the New Testament. You have like 2,000 years of people saying the same thing. You have the pictures of Jesus on billboards and, and, and pictures of him airbrushed on cars, right? So we, we're all familiar. But I remember one professor who was comparing understanding salvation in the Old Testament to being like walking in a, in a dark living room. Like your friend's dark living room. You ever stay over, you know, someone's house, you're visiting, you have to get up for some water, try to make your way to the kitchen, and you have to go through the dark room. The kind of situation, you're heading through the living room, you barely know... Uh, you kind of see, you kind of remember where things are. You see some shadows or outlines of the couch, but then, oh, there's the coffee table. Right. You ever had that feeling? It's like that in the Old Testament. And honestly, friends, it can seem like that now. We look around and we wonder, God, if you're righteous and you're just, I only see glimpses of it. It seems kind of hazy. But... Through Jesus, righteousness and justice are objective facts. So when you wonder and you look around and you say, look, I'm not sure all this is worth it. It doesn't seem to reap any benefits. Where's righteousness? Where's justice? Through Christ, righteousness and justice are objective facts. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3, verse 8. He says, he wants to gain Christ and be found in him, not want having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see that? The righteousness is no longer something he can work for. It's no longer something he produces or people produce among themselves. It's a righteousness that's only given by having faith in Christ. You get Christ's righteousness. His perfect life. So when Christ or God the Father looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Same thing with justice. Romans 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, because we have faith in Christ, justice has been done. You're not going to be condemned by the judge because of having faith in him. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Things are at peace. We have peace between us and the judge. Justice has been done through Christ. Do you see this? So what's the point? Those who trust in Christ, who fear him as God, will have their names permanently etched in the Lamb's book of life. When all else looks hazy in your life, when you wonder why you're persevering in Him, you can know that you have a place with Him. Objectively, forever. You can know, as it says in verse 18, you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him, not because of your own righteousness, because of the righteousness of Christ, having faith in Him. God has written this book. This book believe that wholeheartedly. But he's also written one more book. He's writing one more book. It's more of a scrapbook with all his kids in it. This book of life. What will be said of you? What do you think needs to happen for what you wish to match up with reality? What needs to happen in your life? Might I suggest that it involves being a person whose sole desire is to belong to your dad. It's his treasure possession and to trust that you are already that through Jesus Christ. If you want more than that, if I want more than that, if I want more than being His treasure possession, I might think I'm wanting more, but the truth is, I'm wanting less. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just not, I don't feel like that's just a turn of phrase, God. I think I want more than just being yours, and being your treasure possession. The truth is, I am wanting less. I'm settling on lesser desires in my life, lesser pleasures, things that will eventually grow dull. If I settle my heart on being number one, I'll eventually grow discontent. And Lord, if I test you, if I test you ultimately, I'll fail. Not you'll fail, but I'll fail, Lord. Because I won't understand the great satisfaction of just belonging to you as your treasure possession. I love that question because it's a good question that God's people ask. We look around us, we see the evildoers, the arrogant blessed. So why continue to serve you? The reason is, Lord, you have written our names in a book forever. You have made us yours forever as your treasure possession. These are two glorious truths from your word this morning. May it motivate us when we compare our lives to others. And just delight in being your treasured possession. In Jesus' name, amen.